Hi everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens. Tonight, in our 41st session in our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, we're going to delve into Chapter 6 of Book 3, The Golden Hall, in which our heroes venture into the Golden Hall of the King of the Rohirrim and cast out the darkness they find therein. And then, of course, ride to battle. In a sense, everything that we're going to discuss this week is but a prologue to next week's discussion of the Battle of Helm's Deep. But there's a lot to love in this chapter, particularly if you're a fan of the Rohirrim, particularly if you're a fan of Anglo-Saxon culture, as Professor Tolkien certainly was. We're going to delve deep into that. We're going to take a look at the map in just a moment to kind of frame our discussion. But first of all, welcome to Nikki and Lynette and Karen. Karen is already referencing something here in the Crowdcast chat that I'm going to talk about in just a little bit. Uh, the wonderful Michael Drought, previously mentioned on this uh, on this series, has a reading of the poem The Wanderer, the old English poem, which was an inspiration to the poem which Aragorn recites in this very chapter. I just listened to this reading by Michael Drought right before we started, and it is magnificent. If you've never heard old English spoken aloud, I, I heartily recommend this. The link to this will be in the show notes, of course. We have Paul with us, and Angela with us, and, and I'm hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Fua, Fua. I, I don't know if that's one syllable or two. I hope that you will correct me in the chat. We've got John and we've got uh, Lily joining us for the first time. Lily is here for the first of her adventures here in uh, in uh, the session. Great, good. All right, let's get into our discussion. In fact, what we're going to do I'm going to do something unprecedented. Let me cancel the slide so that I can do something unprecedented here right at the top of tonight's session. We're going to begin with a question. Uh, LeBron Jones asks in the Crowdcast chat interface, would a Balrog or Sauron win a duel? And the reason that I'm addressing this right up front is just that I've spent the last 10 minutes thinking about it. And uh, it's an interesting question, right? Because both the Balrogs and Sauron are... Maiar. That is to say that they are they are of the lesser order of spirits that came into the world upon its creation. They're not the Valar. They're not our you know semi you know uh, semi deities that that occupy kind of pantheistic roles within the world of Arda. They are a lower order of of immortal beings of immortal spirits that have entered the world. But that is not to say that all Maiar are created equal. Certainly, the Balrogs are spectacularly powerful. But Sauron is credited as being the greatest success of Melkor, of, of Morgoth. So it's an interesting question. I would have to give it to Sauron. I have to think that, that Sauron would take down a Balrog. I mean, the most interesting matchup probably is Sauron versus Durin's Bane, right? Sauron versus the Balrog, which Gandalf fought in Khazad-dûm and then cast down upon the slopes of the mountain following their, uh, their ascent up to Durin's Tower, as we discussed last time. I think that Sauron's going to take it, you guys. I'm not that worried about this conflict, but it would certainly be a battle for the ages. But yeah, I'm going to give it to Sauron, possibly on a technicality, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty confident that he would win that that particular battle. Let's take a look then. Let's delve into tonight's reading and take a look at the map, courtesy of lotrproject.com. Let me share this with you and give it primacy so that you can see it. Here we are, as Father John says in the chat here, fortunately, Balrogs are thin on the ground. They are these days, yes. They're, they're not so 
so common in, in these parts, it has to be said. Uh, here you can see roughly the layout of our discussion tonight. You can see Edoras here. Uh, let me put my mouse cursor on it, in fact, so that you can see if you're watching this in particularly high resolution. You can see Edoras here by the River Snowborn. Far to the northwest, you can see the Valley of Nankurinir and Isengard itself on the, the River Isen as it comes down from the mountains there, just in the, the lee of the southern spur of the Misty Mountains. You can also see the Fords of Isen to the south. That's going to be significant because a battle was recently fought just a week ago. A battle was fought at the Fords of Isen, which we're going to discuss a little bit in tonight's reading. A little bit because the chapter itself only discusses this battle a little bit, even though it is a very important conflict. And of course, between Edoras and the Fords of Isen, you can see Helm's Deep here. These are some places that we are going to talk about over the course of the next uh, hour and a half here on there and back again. <laughs> We're calling out Lord of the Rings Project. We just love Lord of the Rings Project here. It's just great. It's just the best resource online for uh, for keeping track of the maps, which can be, you know, difficult. It can be, it can be troubling to, to try and keep track of all of this. So let's talk a little about Rohan itself, because this is going to be very significant. The land of Rohan was populated 500 years ago. In the year 2509 of the Third Age, the steward of Gondor, Kirion, sent summons to the Eotheod for aid in stopping a combined invasion of men from the northeast of Middle-earth and orcs from the Misty Mountains. The emissary Borondir went north to, to contact the Northmen who were living, I guess, up north of, or in the northwest of, the, of Mirkwood, still on the eastern side of the Misty Mountains, but in that area. And Aeorl the Young came south and joined his forces with the Gondorian forces, drove back the assault, and as a reward, was given. he swore mutual alliance and cooperation with, with Gondor, and uh, Kyrian gave Aeorl the deserted but fertile area of Kalinarthon to take as their own and to repopulate. That is Rohan. That is the modern-day Rohan that we see here. So it itself is only 500 years years old. This kingdom, if kingdom is the right word for it, and it basically isn't, but this kingdom has stood now for five centuries, which on the one hand, in the real world, is a significant span of time, but in Tolkien's Legendarium, just a minute, just a hot minute, the Rohirrim have been around in this part of the world. The Rohirrim more so than any other element of Tolkien's subcreation, borrow wholesale from the real world. They are, from their names and their arms and their customs to their culture and their language, Anglo-Saxon. They are just transplanted real-world Anglo-Saxons relocated into the frame of Arda. They are 100%... Well, okay, actually, that's not true. They are... What, 90% Anglo-Saxon? Here's a question for the uh, for the live audience here. What is the big difference between Anglo-Saxons and the Rohirrim? If you can call that out in the chat, I will be very impressed. Uh, throughout this chapter, we're going to see constant references back to Anglo-Saxon culture, as we've already discussed, the Wanderer, which is going to be significant in the poem that, that Aragorn gives us about Aeorl the Young, theoretically about Aeorl the Young, more about the fundamental philosophy of the Rohirrim, I suppose, and kind of the, the, the foundation stones of Rohirric culture. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. And of course, we're going to get direct echoes of the greatest Anglo-Saxon saga, the greatest poetic work in Anglo-Saxon history, Beowulf. We can't really get into those points of comparison because to do a close textual reading of this chapter and a close textual comparison with Beowulf would take 
well, not just all the time that we've got, but all the time that we've got next week and probably the week after too. If you are interested in this, there are some resources online that you can track down that will show you the direct points of comparison, the direct echoes of Beowulf that you can find in this chapter and in Tolkien's depiction of the Rohirrim in general. What is the distinction here between, um, oh, <laughs> Lynette says a difference, the Rohirrim give women some power. Um, actually, not so much. The Anglo-Saxons were were not entirely dismissive of women. They certainly didn't give women political or military power. I mean, yes, that's that's an absolutely fair point. But women were at least respected. Women were not not quite second-class citizens, I suppose. The domain of the woman in Anglo-Saxon culture was absolutely the home. It was the home and the hearth. But for a culture that was fundamentally split between home and hearth and the frontier, that that sphere of influence, to borrow Saruman's phrasing there, that, that area of dominion was not nothing. It was still a respected and important point. We are certainly going to talk about Eowyn as we move through tonight's chapter and, and then basically ever onward through the Two Towers and into the Return of the King too. Uh, Heroes and Bard says, Anglo-Saxon female warriors have been found with weaponry. Absolutely true. Uh, the Rohirrim weren't defeated by the Normans, says Soso Sundari. Inadvertently, I think, putting his finger on it perfectly. What is the big difference between Anglo-Saxon culture and Rohiric culture? Horses. The Rohirrim are defined by horses. They are the horse lords of this land. And the Anglo-Saxons didn't really have that many horses. The Norman conquest was successful because of the skill and the, the kind of developed military tactic of the Norman cavalry. That was one of the things that turned the tide in uh, William the Conqueror's conquest of the island of Britain at that point. So yes, Anglo-Saxon culture absolutely brackets plus horses. That's the big distinction there between the Rohirrim and real-world Anglo-Saxons. Let's get into our first read here as we, um, yes, as, <laughs> as Father John says, Tolkien thought the Norman conquest was a disaster. He absolutely did, right? This is one of the, the dark turning points. I've talked before about Tolkien's fondness for, uh, well, see, I want to say antiquated language, but that's not quite true. He wanted authentic language, right? He wanted to use authentic English language, which meant in large part authentic Old English language, which meant directly that he preferred not to use any word that entered the English language after the year 1500, right? That was a hard line for him. But for preference, he would go back before the Norman conquest. He was distrustful of the Romance languages and their influence over, over English in, you know, English as a developed kind of uh, synthesized language. So yes, absolutely. He, he looks back on the Norman Conquest as a dark day in the history of England. Yes, good. Let's push on here then to our first slide, our first vision of Eroras. This comes from the very beginning of the chapter. Here we are. A bitter chill came into the air. Slowly in the east, the dark faded to a cold gray. Red shafts of light leapt above the black walls of the Emmonmool far away upon their left. Dawn came clear and bright. A wind swept across their path, rushing through the bent grasses. Suddenly Shadowfax stood still and neighed. Gandalf pointed ahead. Look, he cried, and they lifted their tired eyes. Before them stood the mountains of the south, white-tipped and streaked with black. The grasslands rolled against the hills that clustered at their feet and flowed up into many valleys, still dim and dark, untouched by the light of dawn, winding their way into the heart of the great mountains. Immediately before the travelers, the widest of these glands opened like a long gulf among the hills. Far inward, they glimpsed a tumbled mountain mass with one tall peak. At the mouth of the vale, there stood like a sentinel a lonely height. About its feet, there flowed as a thread of silver the stream that issued from the dale. Upon its brow, they caught still far away a glint in the rising sun, a glimmer of gold. Speak, Legolas, said Gandalf. Tell us what you see there before us. 
Legolas gazed ahead, shading his eyes from the level shafts of the new-risen sun. I see a white stream that comes down from the snows, he said. Where it issues from the shadow of the vale, a green hill rises upon the east. A dyke and mighty wall and thorny fence encircle it. Within there rise the roofs of houses. And in the midst, set upon a green terrace, there stands aloft a great hall of men. And it seems to my eyes that it is thatched with gold. The light of it shines far over the land. Golden, too, are the posts of its doors. There men in bright mail stand, but all else within the courts are yet asleep. Eros, those courts are cold, said Gandalf, and Meduseld is their golden hall. There dwells Theoden, son of Thengel, king of the Mark of Rohan. We have come with the rising of the day. Now the road lies plain to see before us, but we must ride more warily, for war is abroad, and the Rohirrim, the horse lords, do not sleep, even if it seems so from afar. Draw no weapon, speak no haughty word, I counsel you all, until we are come before Theoden's seat. So, Edoras, Edoras, literally, of course, uh, the courts, as Gandalf all but tells us here. Edoras, those courts are called. What does Edoras mean? Well, it means the courts. Here, again, we're going to see Tolkien just borrowing wholesale, just translating directly from the Anglo-Saxon. He is going to do that again and again in the course of this chapter. It is a great delight to me that he pulls names so literally from his studies. And, of course, for those of you who don't know, the to- uh, the, the professor, uh, Professor Tolkien, in addition to being, of course, a great literary figure in the 20th century, was also one of the greatest experts in Anglo-Saxon culture and language, particularly with a focus on language. So this is absolutely his area of study. So it's no surprise at all that he is quite so enthusiastic, quite so emphatic about his use of Anglo-Saxon. Um, the, the word eteros in, in Old English, yes, it means uh, the courts, but, but more generally it means dwellings or houses. It's the plural of edor or eodor, which is the, the word meaning house. So we'll see again derivations of that word kind of threaded through the Rohiric language throughout our time spent in Rohan. The word meduseld in Old English means mead hall, having a... A broader connotation than that, it's not just a mead hall, but rather it is, mead here is used metonymically to refer to to feasting and celebration, right? It is a hall of feasts, it is a hall of celebration, and if you have, as I have, played a fair amount of Skyrim, then you might be thinking of Whiterun, and that's not a bad match at all. When I think now of Edoras, I'm thinking of, of Whiterun in Skyrim, that feels like a very authentic replication of this kind of Anglo-Saxon community here. So we look out ahead. Legolas, of course, thanks to his elven sight, can give us more details. He sees the the hall of men roofed in gold, not technically roofed in gold, but roofed rather in straw. It is the the straw reflecting the sunlight that gives it that hint of gold. But yes, that is where we get the golden hall uh, to which the uh, to which the title of this chapter refers. Um, Rayla Lynn says in the chats in, in the chat here, Tolkien's word preference makes sense. His work tends to be adjective heavy. Norman words tend to be blunt, short, and action-oriented. Absolutely, right? I think that in addition, of course, given the professor's proclivities, in addition to the kind of historical details of the introduction of, of Norman words and Romance language into English, there's also, so there's certainly, you know, uh, uh, an antipathy against that kind of dilution of English, of old English, uh, within the frame of, of Britain at the time. But yes, there's also a purposeful kind of linguistic appreciation of Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxon is much more, I suppose, poetic in its way, certainly to Tolkien's mind, yes. Um, and let me see, there was another quote that I wanted to pull. Yes, Jackie says in the uh, in the Crowdcast chat here, I love the descriptions we get of Edoras. They are so magical. Absolutely. Oh, we're getting some uh, 
some contrast here with Helkaraksa, one of my favorite words that Tolkien ever created. Nikki says, Helkaraksa is a cool word, but Edoras gives me the feels. And Lynette says, Edoras takes you to the past. Helkaraksa takes you to doom. What a beautiful contrast there, Lynette. Thank you so much. You're absolutely right. Yes. Good. Good. All right. So that is our introduction to Edoras and to Metastelt. We're going to move closer. But before we get there, we're going to have the memory of the founding of, of Rohan, in, in a sense. The morning was bright and clear about them, and birds were singing when the travelers came to the stream. It ran down swiftly into the plain, and beyond the feet of the hills turned across their path in a wide band, flowing away east to feed the ant wash far off in its reed-choked beds. The land was green. In the wet meads and along the grassy borders of the stream grew many willow trees. Already in the southern land they were blushing red at their fingertips, feeling the approach of spring. Over the stream there was a ford between low banks, much trampled by the passage of horses. The travelers passed over and came upon a wide rutted track leading toward the uplands. At the foot of the walled hill, the, the way ran under the shadow of many mounds, high and green. Upon their western sides, the grass was white as with drifted snow. Small flowers sprang there like countless stars amid the turf. Look, said Gandalf, how fair are the bright eyes in the grass. Evermind they are called, symbolmine in this land of men, for they blossom in all the seasons of the year and grow where dead men rest. Behold, we are come to the great barrows where the sires of Theoden sleep. Seven mounds upon the left and nine upon the right, said Aragorn. Many long lives of men it is since the Golden Hall was built. Five hundred times have the red leaves fallen in Mirkwood in my home since then, said Legolas. And but a little while does that seem to us. But to the riders of the Mark it seems so long ago, said Aragorn, that the raising of this house is but a memory of song, and the years before are lost in the mist of time. Now they call this land their home, their own, and their speech is sundered from their northern kin. Then he began to chant softly in a slow tongue unknown to the elf and dwarf, yet they listened, for there was a strong music in it. That, I guess, is the language of the Rohirrim, said Legolas, for it is like to this land itself, rich and rolling in part, and else hard and stern as the mountains, but I cannot guess what it means, save that it is laden with the sadness of mortal man. We could, this is not an exaggeration, but we could spend pretty much the next hour talking about this slide and this slide alone, because there is so much here on the conflict, the, the contrast between elves and men, and the conflict, the contrast between different tribes of men, and what identity means, and what nationality means. Nationality is not the right word, but what, what fealty and identity mean to these different men in different parts of Middle-earth. But let's begin with the symbilmini, uh, symbelmini, I suppose. I'm never quite sure about the pronunciation of that word, but I like symbilmini, symbelmini. Both of those seem to work rather nicely. These are the flowers, Evermind, they are called. These little white flowers that grow upon the burial mounds within, uh, within which the, the sires of Theoden, the former kings of Rohan, are interred. Seven mounds upon the left, nine upon the right, says Aragorn. This is how many. We've had 16 kings of Rohan ever since uh, Errol the Young came south five centuries before. He says, many long lives of man it is since the Golden Hall was built. And Legolas says, well, okay, 500 times the leaves have fallen in Mirkwood. <laughs> 500? That's nothing. I've, I've lived who knows how many times longer than that. But, uh, you know, this is not enough to make me feel young, as Legolas has been saying over the course of the last few chapters. But Aragorn, you know, stands opposed to that. But to the writers of the Mark, it seems so long ago that the raising of this house is but a memory of song, and the years before are lost in the mist of time. Now they call this land their home, their own, and their speech is sundered from their northern kin. They no longer speak the same language as the Northmen. Now Rohiric is actually a defined language, and it applies only to this land. Then he begins to chant. 
And Legolas identifies it as Rohiric, for it is like to this land itself, rich and rolling in part, and as hard and stern as the mountains. But I cannot guess what it means, save that it is laden with the sadness of mortal man. And it's the sadness of mortal man that stands out to me here. Because when we talk about sadness, particularly in the context of language, doubly so in the context of song, we're generally not talking about mortal man, right? We're generally talking, in fact, about the elves. The elves carry the great sadness of years upon them. They carry the burden of memory and remembrance in a way that men in general don't, and apparently the Rohirrim in particular don't. The Rohirrim have let the past fall away. Yes, five centuries have passed, but they no longer now remember their ancestral homes. They cast those aside and transformed themselves, transformed their culture into something new. The men of the North are not like the Rohirrim. The Rohirrim are unique in all the world, and they have forged this identity themselves over the course of five centuries, over the course of, of 16, you know, kings, 17, I suppose, if we include uh, Theoden in that, which we should, because Theoden is 80 years old, and he's been around for a little while at this point. So what are we to learn from this? Well, we're going to get a better example of this in just a moment. I do want to uh, to call out to Sibelmany is the Rohiric for Evermind. This is a direct translation. Again, Gandalf is just giving us the, the translation here. Evermind, they are called Simbelmini in the land of men, by which I mean this land of men, by which I mean the Rohir in particular. Uh, for they blossom in all the seasons of the year and grow where dead men rest. The Evermind here is a little misleading because mind is, the, the connotation of mind in this specific instance is of memory and remembrance, right? So, so Evermind is ever memory, it is always remembered. There's an interesting kind of piece of speculation that while these are clearly not forget-me-nots, these are not the real-world flower forget-me-nots, a possible translation of uh, Symbelmany would be forget-me-nots, that that would be uh, an appropriate name for these little white flowers that grow in such abundance upon the burial mounds of the Rohirrim here. Let's... Um, Yes, forget me now, Lynn calling it out there, calling it out there perfectly. Yes, uh, Karen says I think it has secondary stress, so we can read Simbel Muni, Simbel Muni, I suppose. Yes, an umlauted U says very egg of Kant. Yeah, I, I'm just not so sure here. Yes, yes, good. <laughs> Simbel Mune says uh, says Father John here. That that sounds good. Yes, Simbel Mune, I think works for me there. Good. We could just spend forever talking about the pronunciations, honestly, because they are so beautiful and so thoughtful. Yes, excellent, excellent. All right, so what does this mean? What is Legolas identifying here, particularly within the realm of, of Rohan, particularly within the realm of the Rohirrim? Well, we're going to get a brief, uh, a brief poem here from Aragorn. This is his Westron translation of the poem that he was just reciting to himself, chanting to himself. Where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? Where is the hand on the harp string and the red fire glowing? Where is the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing? They have passed like rain on the mountain, like a wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills into shadow. Who shall gather the smoke of the dead wood burning, or behold the flowing years from the sea returning? This is the translation that Aragorn gives us. And immediately thereafter, gives us 
an explanation of this, right? This is the lament for the Rohirrim. This is how this poem is properly referred to, the lament for the Rohirrim, but it's also identified by its first line, where now the horse and the rider. This is, as he says, a song about Errol. The actual quote that he gives us immediately after giving this poem is, thus spoke a forgotten poet long ago in Rohan, recalling how tall and feral, fair was Errol the young, who rode down out of the north, and there were wings upon the feet of his steed Felerof, father of horses, so men still sing in the evening. Is it? Is that what it is? Aragorn tells us that this is recalling how tall and fair was Eorl the Young, who rode down out of the north and semicolon, and there were wings upon the feet of his steed Felerof, father of horses. Is that what the poem is saying? Where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? This may be about Eorl the Young, but it is not the kind of poem that we would have seen previously in this book. There is clearly a different intent. We should acknowledge right off the bat here, uh, those of you who came in early may have seen the observation of, by uh, Variag of Khand here in the chat. The Wanderer is an old English poem preserved only in an anthology known as the Exeter Book. This is the inspiration for Tolkien's poem here. He has borrowed, in fact, to uh, really just that first half of the first line he has taken from The Wanderer, where now the horse and the rider. That's kind of a, a rough adaptation, if you like, of the original old English poem, The Wanderer, where I'm going to um, read two lines from this. I'm going to try and read this in the old English, old English pronunciation, also not my strong point, but let's see what we can do. I suppose it would be. Uh, this translates as, where is the horse gone? Where is the rider? Where the giver of treasure. This is part, and as I say, you can check the link in the show notes to listen to uh, to famed Tolkien scholar Michael Drought reciting this in the Old English and doing a far better job of it than I did. Um, what is this poem then? What is it that Aragorn is getting at? Is this the sadness of mortal men, which Legolas identified? Well, in a way, I think, yes. Let's look at the alliterative structure, first of all, because Tolkien has absolutely cribbed the alliterative structure of Anglo-Saxon poetry. Where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? So you can see horse and horn there. Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? So we're getting this repetition again, helm, hauberk, hair. We're getting this, this strong alliterative uh, connection here. Anglo-Saxon poems, generally speaking, did not rhyme. They were generally alliterative in nature. That is how they were formed. The alliteration there being the, the uh, mnemonic device that was used in order to allow people people within the oral tradition to remember how these poems were shaped and how they flowed. So where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing? Where is the hand on the harp string and the red fire glowing? Well, what happens there in that third line? What can you identify in that third line? Well, two things happen. The first is that we kind of break that chain of alliteration here. Where is the hand on the harp string and the red fire glowing? No huh sound there. No huh sound to be found in the, in the back half of that line. But much more importantly, kind of in, in terms of the imagery of the poem, we're turning away from this individual, from presumably Errol the Young, about whom Aragorn assures us this poem was written. Where now the horse and the rider? Where was the horn that was blowing? So we have a rider here, on a, a man on a horse with a horn that he is, is blowing. So presumably implying battle, I mean presumably implying the battle against orcs and men that led Errol the Young and his northmen south into, into 
Rohan in the first place. Where is the helm and the hauberk? The the helm, the, the armored helmet, of course, and the hauberk, the uh, the the shoulder piece or the the chainmail shirt, kind of uh, protecting this rider. Where is the helm and the hauberk and the bright hair flowing, you know, out from beneath the helm? Where is the hand on the harp string? We might even speculate that the hand on the harp string, because harps are kingly because harps are are um, appropriately regal in their fashion that even the hand on the harp string might belong to Errol the Young, but the red fire glowing is very different. And then we continue this turn away from the individual in the next line. Where is the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing? And we're not talking even specifically about, you know, the backdrop to the rider here, because the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing, these are different ideas that are kind of encapsulated. What about the landscape? Where are these things? We're not just talking about an individual. We're talking about a world here, an entire landscape laid out for us. Where are all of these things? We ask rhetorically in the first four lines of this poem, and then we answer them. They have passed like rain on the mountain, like a wind in the meadow. What does that mean? They have gone. They have flowed forth. What happens to the rain on the mountain? Well, the rain doesn't stay on the mountain. It doesn't endure on the mountain. It flows forth from the mountain. And the mountain is left without the rain anymore, without the water that has fallen. Like the wind in the meadow, the wind, by definition, cannot linger within the meadow. The wind, too, passes. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow, we are told. They have set from the world. You know, the sun has gone down. The days have gone down in the West. Going down in the West here, absolutely a connection back to the sun. And we're tempted because of the capitalized W of West here to think of Elvish poetry and to think, oh, oh, West, West, we are good readers of Tolkien. We have paid close attention to the first half of this book. We know what the West means. We know what that represents. But then, of course, we've got to tie back to our discussion Last time, last time or the time before, either in the 40th or 39th session here of There and Back Again, when we were talking about Treebeard giving us the elvish version of the Ents and the Antwives, right? Where we have to recall, oh no, this isn't an Entish song, this is an elvish song. It's about the ants, but it's not written by the ants, which accounts for the inclusion within that song of Valinor. This is a Rohiric song. They have no reason to sing of Valinor. They have no reason to sing of Elvenholm and of the Undying Lands. They're not going to sing of the West in that form. Instead, they're going to, the, the metaphor here seems to be uncloaked. The metaphor here is much more clear. The days have gone down in the west behind the hills into shadow. The sun of these days has set. They have passed us by. Like the rain on the mountain, like the wind in the meadow, like the sun, these things have passed because all things are, are transitory, right? All, uh, none of these things endure. None of these things last. So who shall gather the smoke of the dead wood burning or behold the flowing years from the sea returning? Well, again, we're back into rhetorical question mode here. Who shall gather the smoke of the dead wood burning? No one. No one. Who can gather smoke? Who, can the, who, who among us can gather the smoke, regardless of where it comes from? But specifically, gathering the smoke of the dead wood burning? What is the dead wood here? Is it the forests? I mean, probably not, because, I mean, the wood of the forests, while technically dead, once it has been, you know, hewn, once it has been cut, yes, technically that wood is dead, but it is still fresh, you know? The dead wood may be... The, the homes of those who were ravaged. It may be, you know, the, the, the passing of war.
war. That's certainly the the image that is summoned to my mind by the by these lines. Who shall gather the smoke of the dead wood burning, or behold the flowing years from the sea returning? The years flowing out to sea, of course, mirroring that idea of the rain on the mountain. The rain falls on the mountain, but the mountain can't hold the rain. Rather, the the memory of the rain, the presence of the rain, the event of the rain is a transitory thing. It falls upon the mountain and then passes. It passes ultimately into stream, into river, into sea. And is it going to return? Can it return? And if it does return, who can behold it? No one. You can't see that happening. You can't gather smoke and you can't see time returning off of the sea. Not even, you know, from a, a modern scientific perspective where we know, well, yes, technically the sea will evaporate and the rain will fall again and the rain that falls upon the mountain tomorrow will be the rain that fell on the mountain weeks ago or months ago or years ago. You know, there, there is a cycle to this. That's not contained within the kind of, of mythic apprehension or mythic understanding of the world of Middle Earth. This is a, a modern perspective. So what is this poem telling us? And what is this poem telling us, particularly as Aragorn frames it, with regard to Errol the Young? Things pass. The Rohirrim do not remember. The Rohirrim do not, it would seem, unduly value the past. They are not limited by the past. They are very present, right? And this, I suppose... We can see a couple of different connections here. If we look at the kingdoms that we have ventured into and ventured through in our time since leaving Rivendell, which is, of course, timeless in and of itself, we can consider like the different perspectives on history. When we go into Khazadum, when we go into the mines of Moria, we find ourselves in the Hall of Records, and it is in the Hall of Records that we are able to piece together the history of this place. We find ourselves with, with actual documentary proof about what happened, and it's entirely appropriate for the dwarves, careful record takers that they are, record keepers that they are, that, that the dwarven perspective should be documentary in nature, right? That we should be able to look back with certainty on what has occurred. The fact that Khazad-dûm has a hall of records is wildly significant. Then we move from there into Lothlorien. We move to, to this this nature preserve, this theme park version of the West that is created and maintained by Galadriel, thanks to the power of the ring that she wields. This is the elven approach to history, the restoration initially, but ultimately the static continuation of history. History is ever-present in Lothlorien because history is now. Look around you. This is the world that was, this is the world that is, this is the world that will be, until such time as magic departs the world and we all go into the West. Lothlorien is, is unchanging in that regard. And now the Rohirrim. The Rohirrim do not mark the passage of history. They do not live in the past as even other men do. We've seen, of course, perspectives from Aragorn to a certain degree, though honestly not much at this point. We haven't heard that much of, of the Dúnedain of the North. We haven't heard that much of the remnant of the fallen kingdom of Arnor in the North. But we have heard a fair amount of Gondor, right? And this, how the strength of Gondor has not waned, how the strength of Gondor is still true. The hearts of men still, still burn brightly in Minas Tirith, uh, warding off the shadow. We've heard that kind of narrative coming from Boromir. But of course, that is a narrative that is defined by immediate conflict. Of course, he's going to remember everything that has happened. He knows the conflict against the shadow, right? Minas Tirith stands outside Osgiliath. They're literally standing on the battlefield of what was. And yet remember, there are details of the backstory that Boromir 
does not know. Lore wanes in Gondor, right? Lore wanes in Gondor if you would speak ill of the Lady of the Wood. Lore wanes in Gondor if you don't know what happened to Isildur and his sword and his ring, right? There are stories here that are lost or are occluded. We'll talk about that much more directly when we get to Minas Tirith and we start talking about Denethor here, yes. Gretchen says in the chat here, for dwarves, their pride comes from their past, but for the Rohirrim, their pride comes from their present. That's beautifully put. That's that's beautifully put, yes. And Father John has an interesting point here. It says, um, <clears throat> two interesting points, actually. Uh, firstly, the Gondorians, Father John says, write stuff down. They don't do heroic songs. Very good. I like that a lot. And also, as I said before, even in prose, the Rohirrim tend to speak alliteratively and rhythmically. Right, and there is a great distinction here, okay? The, the Gondorians write stuff down, and the difference between the oral maintenance, the the... the oral tradition of history in a culture and the documentary tradition of history in a culture is stark because what is kept in the oral tradition is the truth of a thing, the heart of the metaphor of a thing. Details can fade, details can pass, but the story remains. The story is what you get. In Gondor, in Khazadum, that is less true, right? In, in Lothlorien, the past is what you get. Like, quite literally, the evocation, the representation, the, the recreation of the past is what you get. But in Khazadum and Gondor both, you get the detail and not always the story. What actually happened can be lost, can be, can be overwhelmed by detail. So it can be difficult to get to the story, to the heart of the metaphor. But that is not true here in Rohan. So we're going to continue to talk about this um, Oh, Lily says, uh, asks an interesting question. Rohan is so young, they perhaps assume their golden age is yet to come. Um, yes, in part, the breaking of Rohan with the men of the north is really interesting in that regard, right? If we look at how they how they describe themselves. In fact, let, let's put a pin in that as we move forward because we'll get a chance to talk about how the, the Rohirrim look at themselves and how they define themselves. We'll, we'll talk about that as we move forward, yeah. Good. Um, Will says, is there a slight implication that written lore is connected with evil or corruption in Middle-earth? Both Denethor and Saruman are great lore masters, but they aren't great guys. That is absolutely true, though we must remember that the greatest lore master in Middle-earth, by Boromir's accounting anyway, by, by the tales told in Gondor, is not Denethor, but Elrond. And Elrond, a pretty stand-up guy, it's fair to say. But yes, I think that it is fair to say that the the missing of the point is always going to be a problem, right? I think that what you're describing there, in, in the, the attempt to document what has happened and what is happening, we can be guilty of the Saromanic impulse to break a thing to understand how it works, right? We are leaving the path of wisdom. We're not apprehending the whole of the thing anymore. We're not understanding the whole of the story. We're looking at the fine detail. And we are mistaking that kind of, of analytical insight for wisdom. This is absolutely a charge that Gandalf lays at the feet of Saruman. This is, this is an outright critique of Saruman, and it's an outright critique that seems to be upheld by the rest of the book, too. It may potentially be an outright critique that we can lay at the feet of Denethor, too. We'll worry about that when we get there. But yes, I think there is an idea of, of this kind of fragmentary analysis being reductive, reductive in the truest sense, right? We are, we are making things smaller in order to understand them. We are, we are chopping them up and breaking them apart so that we might 
in our vanity and in our arrogance, believe that we understand them. That may well be something that's happening in the documentary record there, but that's that's beautiful, yes. Yes, Heroes of Bards pulls the, the greatest contrast here, right? Um, <laughs> which I would read if the Crowdcast chat hadn't scrolled. Here we are. Heroes of Bards pulls the right contrast here. Bilbo and Sam are both characters associated with story and its recording, right? Bilbo is also carefully transcribing his adventures in, in the Red Book, the book that we're holding as we read The Lord of the Rings, in fact, comes to us through Bilbo and Frodo and to a lesser extent Sam. What is the difference there? Bilbo is not purporting to give us history. Bilbo is telling us the story. Bilbo is giving us the entirety of the thing as far as his experience allows him to do. That's the difference. The story is true because of the power of metaphors to be to be more true than true, right? Where even if the incidental detail of the metaphor is is counterfactual, even if the incidental detail of the, of the uh, this in its broader sense is Tolkien's perspective on stories, right? Middle-earth is not real. These events never happened. There is no Rohan, there is no Isengard, there are no ants. These things are fictional. He created them. This is a, a sub-creative impulse from Tolkien. But contained within this sub-creative impulse, despite the fact that the incidental details are all counterfactual, they are all fictional, they are all untrue, the heart of the story, the meaning of the story is more true than true. That is to say that, that it is not just true objectively, but true subjectively thanks to the power of stories and storytelling. He ensnares us in his secondary creation. This is the power of narrative for Tolkien. This is specifically the power of fantasy and fairy tale. The response that we get, our understanding of the world and of ourselves and of good and of evil and of all the great themes that, that Tolkien lays out for us is greater than it would be if he simply accounted for our real life experience in a kind of quasi-fictional frame. This is the great power of, of folklore. Yes. Good. All right. Let me see here. Um, so Gretchen says, is there something to be said about the power of lore in Middle-earth? So we can see that there are powers of good and powers of evil who gain their power from the mastering of story. Um, I mean, yes, yes, I guess. There's a continuum here, right? Let me cancel the slide. I just realized I've had this slide up for a long time and I've been talking to you in a little corner of your windows instead of occupying your full screens. I mean, let's let's expand our, our discussion here. Um, yes, there is, it seems to me, a continuum here. Remember back in the pages of The Hobbit where we have this conflict between Bilbo's Took side and his Baggins side, you know, and we get the, the tension between the prose of the Baggins and the poetry of the Took. It turns out that Mr. Baggins was not so prosy as he might have believed, right? He starts moving toward poetry as he undergoes adventures. We get his first spontaneous recitations, his first spontaneous creations of poetry as we move through the story. And by the time that we catch up with him in Rivendell in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, he is a master poet. He is actually most famous in Rivendell as a poet. And we get to see a similar arc from Sam in this book too, though Sam does not start in quite so prosy a place as Bilbo did back in the pages of The Hobbit. So we have a tension between poetry and song and prose, right? But I think that we can go further. I think that we can extend out this spectrum still further so that prose, rather than being on the, the conservative side, on the, the literalistic side of the spectrum, instead occupies the middle ground. And once you come from poetry through prose, you end up at documentation. You end up at, at history, a cold accounting of names and dates that doesn't even give you the, the, the metaphorical insight, the, the, the imagistic 
insight that you would get from prose and certainly not the greater metaphor and symbol that you would get from poetry. So I think that there is a continuum here and I'm trying desperately to think of instances in which the recording of finite dates and details is given to us as a positive thing and I'm coming up blank here. I don't think that I can, I, I can put my finger on a specific instance of that kind of analytical documentary, uh, documentary approach to, to either history or to, you know, the contemporary world. I can't think of a single example of that being presented to us in a, an entirely positive light. So yes, we may here be talking about one of the great, the great thematic spectra that Tolkien presents to us in the, the frame of this. Yeah. As, as some writers have it, says Father John, fiction is lies that tell the truth. Absolutely, yes. Will says, man, this is a great discussion we're all having, but I'm just on the edge of my seat waiting to hear Alistair's worm tongue voice. Hey, you and me both, Will. I haven't uh, given that any thought. Hey, let's see where we end up when we get to that slide, shall we? So that is our poem. And all of this is to say that it seems to me that the, the, the Rohirrim don't... <sighs> don't celebrate or embody or carry with them the past. These things fade. Where now the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? These things have passed into history as all things pass into history. Can we catch the smoke of the, of the, the dead wood? Can we behold the years returning from the sea? No, these things have passed and to try to hold on to them is foolish. And that does give us one possible insight into Rahiric culture, right? This may not just be that they are a young culture looking ahead to their golden age, looking ahead to their the fullest realization of their potential as a, as a kingdom, as a culture, whatever. It may be more dark than that. They may be looking back at the past and saying, oh, we've lost a lot. We've lost a great deal. We came down from the north and for we aided our, our kinsfolk in Gondor and we forged an alliance with them at their need, at their behest. But we have lost the north. We have lost our ancestral homes, our ancestral kingdoms. What of those things? What of the spring and the harvest and the corn that is growing? Well, these things have passed. These things are are now as mist on the mountain, as rain on the mountain, as the years passed out to the sea. That's also a potential interpretation here. We absolutely must move on and we must get to Edoras itself. Let me share this slide with you. Here we are. All right. There sat many men in bright mail who sprang at once to their feet and barred the way with spears. Stay, strangers here unknown, they cried in the tongue of the Riddermark, demanding the names and errand of the strangers. Wonder was in their eyes, but little friendliness, and they looked darkly upon Gandalf. Well do I understand your speech, he answered in the same language, yet few strangers do so. Why then do you not speak in the common tongue, as is the custom in the West, if you wish to be answered? It is the will of Theoden King that none should enter his gates, save those who know our tongue and are our friends, replied one of the guards. None are welcome here in days of war but our own folk, and those who come from Mundburg in the land of Gondor. Who are you that come heedless over the plain, thus strangely clad, riding horses like to our own horses? Long have we kept guard here, and we have watched you from afar. Never have we seen other riders so strange, nor any horse more proud than is one of these that bear you. He is one of the Meras, unless our eyes are cheated by some spell. Say, are you not a wizard, some spy from Saruman, or phantoms of his craft? Speak now, and be swift. We are no phantoms, said Aragorn, nor do your eyes cheat you. For indeed, these are your own horses that we ride, as you knew well, ere you asked, I guess. But seldom does thief ride home to the stable. Here are Hasophel and Arod that Eomer, the third marshal of the Mark, lent to us only two days ago. We bring them back now, even as we promised him. Has not Eomer then returned and given warning of our coming? A troubled look came into the guard's eyes. 
Of Aomer I have naught to say, he answered. If what you tell me is truth, then doubtless Theodim will have heard of it. Maybe your coming was not wholly unlooked for. It is but two nights ago that Wormtongue came to us and said by the will of Theoden no stranger should pass these gates. Wormtongue, said Gandalf, looking sharply at the guard. Say no more. My errand is not to Wormtongue, but to the Lord of the Mark himself. I am in haste. Will you not go or send to say that we are come? His eyes glinted under the deep brows as he bent his gaze upon the man. Yes, I will go, he answered slowly. But what names shall I report? And what shall I say of you, old and weary you seem now, and yet you are fell and grim beneath thy deem? Well do you see and speak, said the wizard, for I am Gandalf. I have returned. And behold, I too bring back a horse. Here is Shadowfax the Great, whom no other hand can tame. And here beside me is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the heir of kings, and is to Mundburg, and it is to Mundburg that he goes. Here also are Legolas the Elf and Gimli the Dwarf, our comrades. Now go and say to your master that we are at his gates and would have speech with him, if he will permit us to come into his halls. Mundberg here. Uh, Mundberg in the land of Gondor. Mundberg is the Rohiric word for Minas Tirith. Mundberg translates directly as guardian fortress, as Minas Tirith in Gondorian translates as the tower of guard. So no one can come here unless you know our language, which, as Aragorn has already conveniently noted, is now distinct from the language of our northern brethren. Now, unless you are Rohiric, then you don't know our language, and that's just fine. That's the way that we like it. So you can come in if you are of, of the Rohirrim, or if you come to us from Minas Tirith to the south. And we also get here our introduction of Worm Tongue. Worm Tongue, um, the kind of modernization, the, the rough and crude adaptation of Worm Tongue, the, uh, the snake-tongued, that's what Worm Tongue means. It's not worm in the sense of worm in English, but worm in the sense of worm or snake, or, you know, there's that that kind of continuity of meaning, of continuity of connotation, at least between Wyrm and snake and dragon, of course, but certainly it is snake-tongued. Grima the snake-tongued. More on him later. So we get some great Aragorn here, we get some great Gandalf here, but much more importantly, we get our first insight into what is happening here in Rohan. Eomer did not discuss this openly. He did not give us a great deal of uh, a terribly deep or, or nuanced account of what was happening back here. But now we see that the gates have been barred, that we are fearful now of enemies, and fearful too of wizards, right? Which is not just about Saruman, I'm sure. Long have we kept guard here and we have watched you from afar. Never have we seen other riders so strange, nor any horse more proud than is one of those that bear you. He is one of the Mieras, unless our eyes are cheated by some spell. Say, are you not a wizard? Some, excuse me, some spy from Saruman or phantoms of his craft. Speak now and be swift. Some spy from Saruman or phantoms of his craft. Saruman, of course, the master of illusion. We know that he can weave illusions that seem to be real. Is it possible that these riders who have come so strangely over the grass to the north in particular, not from the southeast, not, or I guess mostly east uh, of, of Minas Tirith, but from the north, from well, the only thing that's up there, you guys on this side of, of you know, Lothlorien, I mean, we've got Fangorn to the north and the northeast, and we've got Isengard. This is a pretty suspicious direction for anyone to be coming from. Yes. Worm as in dragon, says Angela Lurie. Yes. And Nikki confirms Gandalf is a boss. Yes. Will says, so they're saying those that come from Gondor in the land of Gondor, they're saying those who come from Minas Tirith in the land of Gondor. Mundberg is specifically Guardian Fortress, so specifically Minas Tirith. Minas Tirith is, yes, the Tower of Gondor that stands to the west of the uh, the ancient Gondorian capital of Osgiliath. Yes, good. Um, 
<laughs> Variagov Khan says, my wife says I'm fell and grim beneath. I love that very much, actually. Uh, but what name should I report of what shall I say of you old and weary you seem now, yet you are fell and grim beneath, I deem? We also get this beat. Let me, um, let me find it here. Uh, yes, uh, when he's talking about worm tongue. Say no more, my errand is not to worm tongue, but to the Lord of the Mark himself. I am in haste. Will you not go or send to say that we are come? His eyes glinted under his deep brows as he bent his gaze upon the man. The glinting of light from Gandalf's eyes here is significant in the wake of all of the many descriptions we've had of Gandalf associating him with light and with the sun. Remember, from, from the moment of his return as Gandalf the White there on the fringes of Fangorn, he has been associated with the sun, and this glint of light seems to be the merest manifestation of his power. Um, will you not go or send to say that we are come? Then we get the glint of the eyes. Is Gandalf extending his power now? Is he manipulating or intimidating or, you know, Jedi mind-tricking this poor nameless guard at the gate? Maybe, because the immediate response, yes, I will go, he answered slowly. But what name shall I report of? What shall I say of you old and weary you seem yet you are fell and grim beneath, I deem? Yes, I should go. These are not the droids that I'm looking for, but... You aren't okay, old man. There's something very suspicious about you. And Gandalf, of course, reveals himself. No word of threat here, no, no blustering, no, my name is for the king and the king alone. No, I am Gandalf. I have returned. And behold, I too bring back a horse. Here is Shadowfax the Great, knowing perhaps that the name of the horse is going to be at least as significant as his own name. Yes. As Gandalf stole his most prized horse. Yes, that's very fair. Um, let me see here. Um, oh, we're scrolling back up. Uh, Will says, why is it that Wormtongue is just named Wormtongue instead of some sort of translation? Tolkien has been pretty good with direct translations thus far. Is there an implication it's a nickname from the Rohirrim people? Um, yes, it doesn't seem to be a family name, right? It seems to be, it seems to be, he is, is sly and deceitful. And I guess uh, more than sly and deceitful. What is he? He is skilled right? There's a connection between Wormtongue and Saruman, that Saruman, the man of craft and the man of skill, the man of devices and of cunning, there's that element to Wormtongue too, taken from the, the old English here. And uh, while it isn't directly translated, it is pretty much directly translated, right? The, the actual translation for Wormtongue would be Wormtongue, so it's, it's very close. It's just been rendered in English rather than, you know, recast into Rohiric. But yes, I, I, I see exactly your point. That's a, that's a very good, that's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. Wormtongue is a nickname. His actual name is Grima, says Father John. Yes, we'll get to the uh, the explanation of Grima later. Yes, good, good. <laughs> Nicky suggests that it comes from his parents, and we will name you Wormtongue. Yeah, yeah. You got to wonder what a first impression Wormtongue made on his parents, don't you? Okay. So that's our first threshold here, right? We've we've come across the grassland. We have been stalled by the guards at the gate, and this is the uh, this is the 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 barricade around Edoras here. So this isn't we're not even at the Golden Hall yet. This is just around the, the city is perhaps too strong a word, but behind the settlement here. This is the, the the protective barrier around the settlement. So we pass through the gate into Edoras proper, and ultimately to the Golden Hall itself. I am the door ward of Theoden, he said. Hama is my name. Hama, I suppose, stressing the second syllable there. Hama is my name. Here I must bid you lay aside your weapons before you enter. Then Legolas gave into his hand his silver-hafted knife, his quiver, and his bow. Keep these well, he said, for they come from the golden wood, and the Lady of Lothlorien gave them to me. 
Wonder came into the man's eyes, and he laid the weapons hastily by the wall, as if he feared to handle them. No man will touch them, I promise you, he said. Aragorn stood a while, hesitating. It is not my will, he said, to put aside my sword or to deliver Underwill into the hand of another man. It is the will of Theoden, said Hama. It is not clear to me that the will of Theoden, son of Thangal, even though he be lord of the Mark, should prevail over the will of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Elendil's heir of Gondor. This is the house of Theoden, not of Aragorn, even if he, even were he king of Gondor in the seat of Denethor, said Hama, stepping swiftly before the doors and barring the way. His sword was now in his hand and the point toward the strangers. This is idle talk, said Gandalf. Needless is Theoden's demand, but it is useless to refuse. A king will have his way in his own hall, be it folly or wisdom. Truly, said Aragorn, and I would do as the master of the house bade me, were this only a woodsman's cot if I bore now any sword but Underil. Whatever its name may be, said Hama, Hama, there you shall lay it, if you would not fight alone all the men in Edoras. Not alone, said Gimli, fingering the blade of his axe and looking darkly up at the guard as if he were a young tree that Gimli had a mind to fell. Not alone. Come, come, said Gandalf. We are all friends here, or should be, for the laughter of Mordor will be our only reward if we quarrel. My errand is pressing. Here at least is my sword, Goodman Hama. Keep it well. Glamdring it is called, for the elves made it long ago. Now let me pass. Come, Aragorn. Slowly, Aragorn unbuckled his belt and himself set his sword upright against the wall. Here I set it, he said, but I command you not to touch it, nor to permit any other to lay hand on it. In this elvish sheath dwells the blade that was broken and has been made again. Telkar first wrought it in the deeps of time. Death shall come to any man that draws Elendil's sword, save Elendil's heir. Ritalin's calling out Gimli's impetuousness, and yes, I think we all adore that. That's, that's pretty good. Yes, as, as uh, Heroes and Bard says, okay, you might be king, but I'm the king. Yes, here we're getting the, the kind of the burden of, the, of the, the, the throne, right? The burden of his inheritance here for Aragorn, but also the power, the power associated with it. It's interesting to kind of track this and to kind of deconstruct this. So uh, Hama, the, the door ward of Theoden, uh, Hama meaning, uh, Hama comes from Ham, which simply means house or home. So Hi, my name is House. I guard the door to the uh, house. So give me your weapons. That'll be fine, right? We can definitely do that. I am the door ward of Theoden. Hama is my name. Here I must bid you lay aside your weapons before you enter. Here I must bid you, right? We're, we're getting the sense here. This is not provocative. This is not confrontational. Here I must bid you. This is my duty. This is my role here is to have you surrender your weapons before you go into the golden hall. Why is there a rule in place? that visitors must surrender their weapons before they go into the Golden Hall? Given that only, you know, people of the Rohirrim or of Minas Tirith are allowed into Edoras in the first place? Well, we might speculate about the paranoia that is now rampant in the Golden Hall itself. Then Legolas gave into his hand his silver-hafted knife, his quiver, and his bow. Keep these well, for they come from the Golden Wood and the Lady of Lothlorien gave them to me. Legolas is like, cool, here you go, here are my weapons. I'll hand over all of them, but watch out, Galadriel gave me these don't mess with them. And Hama, of course, rather charmingly sets them against the wall. Okay, uh, no one is going to touch those for a couple of reasons. That's fine. Then Aragorn stands hesitating. It is not my will to put aside my sword or to deliver Anduril to the hand of any other man. So two thoughts here. It is not my will, A, to put aside my sword. I am a ranger of the north. I am of the Dunedain. It is not my will to surrender my weapon and leave myself defenseless here in an unknown land. Secondly, 
It is not my will to deliver Anderil into the hand of any other man. And I realized as I was preparing this slide that we didn't really talk about this. This is one of the first times that we really talk about Narsil that became Anderil, the sword that, that Elendil wore, the, the, the blade that was broken in Isildur's hand, the, the, the blade that was reforged for Aragorn that is a symbol of the returning king. This sword was forged during the First Age by the dwarf Telchar, as we get in, in this passage here. In the Second Age, Narsil is the heirloom of the descendants of Elros, the first king of Numenor, and then, of course, it passes into Elendil's hand at the siege of Barad-dûr uh, during the War of the Last Alliance, and the sword is is shattered there. The sword breaks into two pieces. Crucially, this is one of the big distinctions that that kind of I have trouble with. I have trouble remembering that canonically in in uh, the novel. Andoril, Narsil is broken only into two pieces. We don't get the shards of the blade. So I inadvertently find myself referring poetically to the shards of Narsil before it is reforged into Andoril. And that's not how it is in the book. That comes to us directly from the movies. It's an adaptive choice that I really like. I actually really like the the breaking, the the, the fragmentation of Narsil in, in the movies and the way that it is reforged into Underworld because it seems to be much more thematically impactful, much more representative of what happens to, you know, the kingdoms of the Last Alliance, the kingdoms of the West in the wake of the War of the Last Alliance and the siege of Barad-dûr there. So we get this, this first off, I don't want to surrender my weapon, A, I particularly don't want to surrender... Underil, the flame of the West. I don't want to surrender this sword that was reforged. To which Hama replies, it's the will of Theoden. Theoden's the king. He says, do it. Therefore, you're going to do it. And Aragorn says, it is not clear to me. It is not clear to me. Not no, but it is not clear to me that the will of Theoden, son of Thangal, even though he be lord of the Mark, should prevail over the will of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Elendil's heir of Gondor. Yeah, we're getting the full names here. Yes, we're getting the, the actual history, the formal titles. Theoden, son of Thangal, lord of the Mark, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Elendil's heir of Gondor. Elendil's heir, not just, not just heir to the throne of Gondor, but Elendil's heir. We're calling back to the most famous wielder of, of Narsil, as it was at the time. Hama, though, not flustered. This guy deserves a promotion. This guy's doing great. Not flustered. This is the house of Theoden, not of Aragorn. Even were he king of Gondor in the seat of Denethor, even if you were the actual king right now, which, okay, maybe you are the heir. Maybe you are returning with a sword that was broken and reforged. Fine. But even if you were the king of Gondor right now, even if that throne was yours, instead of currently being occupied by the steward, of, uh, by the steward Denethor there, even if that were true, this would still be Theoden's hall. It's not your throne room. You are not lord here. You are not king here. We do not owe you fealty. And this is a an interesting kind of, of feudalistic detail here that would be apparent to, I think, Anglo-Saxon scholars and scholars of kind of of European medieval history, but it is perhaps a little odd for modern readers. The Northmen came down to aid Gondor at the time that Gondor was already, of course, Gondor was already under the, the rule of the stewards, right? There, there has been no king in Gondor for a long time now. So when they signed that alliance, they are not swearing fealty to the king. No one in Rohan owes Aragorn, even if he is the king in Gondor, a damn thing. No one here has taken an oath to Aragorn. They have taken formal oaths to the state of Gondor, but most specifically to the stewards themselves. So though Aragorn technically is the king of the northern and southern united kingdom there, he's not king of Rohan. 
and won't be king of Rohan. Like, even if he ascends the throne, he won't be king of Rohan unless there is some kind of new formal declaration of fealty that comes along after that. I just realized that the Crowdcast chat has stopped scrolling, which is why I'm not keeping up with all that you're saying. Angela notes, my formal string of names is longer than yours. I win. Yes, good. Nikki says, I also prefer the shards of Narsil, but that's always how I hear it in my head. Yes, harder to reforge as Heroes and Bards notes, but I like that too, right? I, I like the fact that reforging the sword that was broken when it's shattered the way that it is in the movies, that feels like an even bigger deal. I, I, I just like that a lot. Yes, yes, good. Mitchell says, Eowyn, asterisks Eowyn sits on the throne. I am no king. Good, good. All right. Oh, Gretchen's asking, how do you feel about the choice to wait until Return of the King to reforge the blade in the movies? Um, well, okay. Why do we reforge the blade in the fellowship, in the book, I suppose is the question. And what is altered by reforging the blade in the Return of the King movie rather than doing it that much earlier? Underil in the book is actually a primary symbol of Aragorn's inheritance, his claim on the throne, his identity, in fact, right? Wielding Anduril, even here, I carry Anduril. You know who I am. You know what this sword is. This is the sword that was broken and reforged. You know what that means. So Aragorn is that much greater immediately. By pushing back the reforging of the blade into the Return of the King movie, we deprive him of that powerful symbol, that, that, that proof of his identity, that proof of his role, if you like, which is, for the movies, actually a strong choice. Because the movies made the decision to have a relatively insecure Aragorn, right? Sometimes people return from the movies to the books and they're reading Aragorn and thinking like, where is the self-doubt? Where is the, the angst and the ennui of Aragorn that we see so clearly on the screen in Viggo Mortensen's performance? Where is that in the book? And the answer is nowhere. Basically, nowhere, right? We get a little hint of that at Parth Gollum, where he's complaining that, you know, all of his choices have gone awry, that every choice that he has made is, has, has turned to, to ill. There's hints of it throughout the book, but really, he is the king. He's the king from the first time that we meet him. He's certainly the king by the time that we get to Rivendell. He gets Anduril. We see him, you know, uncloaked there in Rivendell with Elrond and Arwen. We get to catch our first glimpse of him. We see him as we're passing through the Argonauts. You know, there are all of these moments where Aragorn is already demonstrably the king. He is in the act of returning even now. That is not true in the movies. There's so much more doubt for Aragorn. And that's a choice, right? I think if you like that adaptive choice, then pushing the reforging of the sword into the third movie makes a lot of sense because it creates additional pressure on him. He's not wielding the greatest symbol of his kingship, right? He's he's just wielding his, his Dunedain sword. He's, he's holding the sword of the rangers as he moves forward. If you give him the weapon, there, it decreases the tension for his internal arc. If you don't like that internal arc, if you don't like that decision to make Aragorn that much more insecure, that much more of a modern hero, honestly, like, like modern in the sense of kind of post-Tolkienian, I suppose. Um, if you don't like that decision, then the decision to push the reforging of the sword into the third movie just exacerbates it. It just makes it all the worse. And there is a strong argument that if you had pulled it into the first movie, if it had been done at Rivendell as it is in the book, that Aragorn would have been able to kind of would have been able to lean upon the sword to support his identity and to kind of quell some of those doubts. It's it's one of the, I suppose, very quietly, you know, because it's, it's never really... Uh, it never really comes into the forefront of the movies, but it is very quietly one of the most significant changes that Peter Jackson and company made in their adaptation of the book. Yeah, good. Um, 
And, and of course, both versions, I think, are completely viable. Both versions give us an insight into Aragorn, yeah. Um, Mitchell says, has anyone else ended up loving the films more as we go through there and back again? Um, I would love to hear if people have. Uh, oftentimes, I think the close study of the book tends to take some of the some of the gleam off of the movies. I should say, too, for those of you who also keep up with my uh, Dear Mr. Potter series, in which I discuss Harry Potter and in which I am currently discussing the uh, classic 1968 novel, A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin, which, by the way, if you're a Tolkien fan, hey, so is Ursula Le Guin. You should definitely read A Wizard of Earthsea and definitely come on over to Dear Mr. Potter and hear me talk about it because there's a lot of Tolkien in that book, you guys. Dear Mr. Potter goes out on a Tuesday night, but early in the new year, when I begin my study of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire early in January, I'm actually going to have to reschedule that for three weeks in a row because my local movie theater here in Oklahoma City on, on every Tuesday night in January and then into February is showing the extended cuts of the Hobbit movies and the Lord of the Rings movies. So I'm going to reschedule Dear Mr. Potter for probably just three weeks. I don't think that I'm going to go and see the extended cuts of the Hobbit movies in the theater. I don't know that my time is pretty valuable and I'm not sure that, that those movies are really going to, although, you know, maybe that's unfair. Maybe I should go and see them in the theaters and kind of be wowed by the spectacle of them, but I am definitely going to go and see the uh, extended cuts of the Lord of the Rings movies. And if you guys are anywhere near Oklahoma City, such that you can make the trip in uh, on a Tuesday evening at the, end of, uh, at the end of January and beginning of February, then you are definitely invited to come along. I think that would be a really interesting thing. So you can also expect some additional there and back again content as I talk about seeing these movies on the big screen for the first time since they came out which is a shockingly long time ago now. Yes, yes, good. I do urge you, go check out your local retro movie theater. Go go, just, you know, stay in touch with them because it turns out that the Lord of the Rings movies are shown on a not infrequent basis across this land. So if you live somewhere where you have a decent selection of movie theaters, you may be able to find uh, a showing of the Lord of the Rings pretty soon. Okay, let's keep pushing on. We've got to... Uh, We've got to get in. Uh, where did we get to here? Yes. So this is the house of Theoden, not of Aragorn. Even if he were king of Gondor in the seat of Denethor, said Harbor, stepping swiftly toward the doors and barring their, and barring their way. His sword was now in his hand and the point towards the strangers. Dude draws his sword. Bold, bold move there by the door ward of Theoden king. This is idle talk, says Gandalf. Needless as Theoden's demand, look, okay, we don't need technically to give up our weapons. We have no interest in harming him, but it's useless to refuse. A king will have his way in his own hall, be it folly or wisdom. A king will have his way in his own hall. Let's just bear that in mind as we move through the rest of this chapter, shall we? Because uh, Gandalf may choose to oppose a king's will in his own hall, maybe more than once, in fact, in the rest of this novel. Um, Truly, says Aragorn, yes, you're right. You know what? This is his domain. You're right. I would do as the master of the house bade me, were this only a woodsman's cot. If we were at the meanest little shack in the forest, I would surrender my weapon before going inside. I absolutely understand that a man's house is his his castle. That's that's absolutely understood. But um, mm, Anduril, though, I'm wielding the flame of the West, and it doesn't feel right to put it into another man's hand. It doesn't feel right to surrender it. This is the giving up of something very important here. Whatever its name may be, says Hama, here you shall lay it if you would not fight alone against all the men in Edoras. Gimli steps up because of course he does, because Gimli's never met a fight against overwhelming odds that he doesn't want to participate in. And then Aragorn resolves it himself. Gandalf gives up Glandring, of course, which we may have forgotten that he was carrying. And 
there is a question over that, but you know, I don't have time to go into the details of, of Gandalf's individual possessions, but slowly Aragorn unbuckled his belt and himself sent his sword upright against the wall. Here I set it, but I command you not to touch it, nor to permit any other to lay hand on it. In this elvish sheath dwells the blade that was broken and has been made again. Telchar first wrought it in the deeps of time. Death shall come to any man that draws Elendil's sword, save Elendil's heir. That has the resonance of prophecy. This is one of those moments where Aragorn seems to be speaking. It doesn't feel like a threat, and it certainly doesn't feel as though a threat is appropriate. He's never not respectful. He's never less than respectful to the door ward of Theoden King. He understands this man's role. But when he warns against death, death shall come to any man that draws Elendil's sword, save Elendil's heir, he is, he is prophesying there. That is one of those moments, I think, where Aragorn is having a, not necessarily a glimpse of the future, but a a powerful foreboding of the future, at least, right? Um, let me see. Gimli rushes in, says Raylolin. Yes, Gimli, definitely the Magnus of the uh, of our, our adventuring party here. Let's get into our big confrontation here with uh, Theoden himself, Theoden, son of Thangle. Now the four companions went forward, past the clear wood fire burning upon the long hearth in the midst of the hall. Then they halted. At the far end of the house, beyond the hearth and facing north toward the doors, was a dais with three steps, and in the middle of the dais was a great gilded chair. Upon it sat a man so bent with age that he seemed almost a dwarf, but his white hair was long and thick and fell in great braids from beneath a thin golden circlet set upon his brow. In the centre upon his forehead shone a single white diamond. His beard was laid like snow upon his knees, but his eyes still burned with a bright light, glinting as he gazed at the strangers. Behind his chair stood a woman clad in white, at his feet upon the steps sat a wizened figure of a man with a pale, wise face and heavy-lidded eyes. There was silence. The old man did not move in his chair. At length Gandalf spoke. Hail, Theoden, son of Thengel, I have returned. For behold, the storm comes, and now all friends should gather together, lest each singly be destroyed. Slowly the old man rose to his feet, leaning heavily upon a short black staff with a handle of white bone, and now the stranger saw that bent though he was, he was still tall and must in youth have been high and proud indeed. I greet you, he said, and maybe you look for welcome. But truth to tell, your welcome is doubtful here, Master Gandalf. You have ever been a herald of woe. Trouble follows you like crows, and ever the oftener the worse. I will not deceive you. When I heard that Shadowfax had come back riderless, I rejoiced at the return of the horse, but still more at the lack of the rider. And when Aomer brought the tidings that you had gone at last to your long home, I did not mourn. But news from afar is seldom sooth. Here you come again, and with you come evils worse than before, as might be expected. Why should I welcome you, Gandalf Stormcrow? Tell me that. Slowly he sat down again in his chair. You speak justly, Lord, said the pale man sitting upon the steps of the dais. It is not yet five days since the bitter tidings came that Theodred, your son, was slain upon the west marches, your right hand, second marshal of the mark. In Aomer there is little trust. Few men would be left to guard your walls if he had been allowed to rule, and even now we learn from Gondor that the Dark Lord is stirring in the east. Such is the hour in which this wanderer chooses to return. Why indeed should we welcome you, Master Stormcrow? Lath spell, I name you, ill news. And ill news is an ill guest, they say. He laughed grimly as he lifted his heavy lids for a moment and gazed on the strangers with dark eyes. 
You are held wise, my friend Wormtongue, and are doubtless a great support to your master, answered Gandalf in a soft voice. Yet in two ways may a man come with evil tidings. He may be a worker of evil, or he may be such as leaves well alone, and comes only to bring aid in time of need. Great confrontation here. We have Theoden, son of Thangle, sitting on his throne, sitting on his dais with, you'll note, the woman in white behind him there. More on her later. But we also have, of course, Grima Wormtongue, who reminds us that it is not yet five days since the bitter tidings came that Theodred, your son, was slain upon the West Marches. This is the first battle of the Fords of Isen. This is basically a battle that happened near Isengard. There was news that the Urukai were massing to the south of Isengard. Theoden dispatched his army, led by his son Theodred, who was, of course, killed. The Rohirrim did win the battle. They drove back the orcs into Isengard, but it was a costly victory. And now the heir of Rohan has died, and there is no heir in his place. Theodred was the only son of Theoden king. But here we're getting Master Stormcrow, Gandalf Stormcrow, the bearer of ill news. Lathspell, I name you, ill news. This is an interesting bit of Old English, too. Spell in Old English generally meant um, a, a message. It meant news, as, as Wormtongue conveniently translates for us here. Spell means news. It means a message. So the spell that we associate with, with you know, magic, the casting of spells, and you'll note that spell is a word that is hardly ever used in Tolkien, and when it is used, it is used only in very particular circumstances. Spell meaning, you know, magic spell is used very, very rarely. That is not generally how Tolkien talks about magic at all, because spell means message. It means, you know, this, this, this communication of something, the bringing of something from one place to another, and in effect, the change that is wrought by this thing. This is why we associate spells with change, because when the news comes, the world is altered. When you learn something new, you are altered by it. So, lath spell, ill news. Lath here taken from um, uh, taken from the Old English meaning causing hate or evil or injury. It's a pretty grim thing. But uh, spell here also used in... Um, or, or kind of, I suppose, the opposite of last spell would be God spell, good spell, right? The, the, the good news, which is where we get the word gospel. Gospel is the contraction of good spell. So this is kind of the opposite of that. This is the, the bringer of the bad news, capital T, capital B, capital N, right? Gandalf brings with him trouble and discord and conflict and fearsome news from afar. News from afar is seldom sooth as Theoden says. Not just, by the way, are you unwelcome here, Gandalf, but uh, when Shadowfax returned to us, uh, riderless, I was very glad that the greatest horse of his kind had returned to us. I was more glad that you had not. And then when Aomer came back and said, oh, bad news about Gandalf, yeah, I'm not going to say that we didn't have a party. I'm not going to say that we didn't sit around singing Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead for, you know, a couple of hours. It was a couple of hours. That's fine. This is my meat hall. I can do what I want. It's pretty stark here that, that Gandalf is unwelcome. It's like a gym locker room in here, says Nikki. Yeah, there's a certain measuring contest going on, right? Yes. Good. And Gretchen says he's trying to assert his dominance over Gandalf by dropping all of his names, the power of names, right? This is the, this, uh, yes, we're kind of tracking back through his names here. Oh, and, and Father John is, is calling out laughs about the opposite of gospel. Yes, absolutely. Um, Theoden does not seem to understand that correlation does not imply causation, says Lily. <laughs> I like that a great deal. I like that a great deal. Yes, um, 
but you're right. You're absolutely right. What does Wormtongue do to try and and shroud Gandalf's power? To try and deny Gandalf's power here in the hall of Theoden King? Well, he removes his name. He's not, you know, wielder of the secret flame. He's not Gandalf the Grey, Gandalf the White. He's not even Master Gandalf, Master Stormcrow. That's like the lowest the lowest level of power that we can grant him here. Oh, you? You're like a raven that brings bad news. You're just, you're just trouble is what you are. You're not even the instigator of bad news. You're just the bringer of bad counsel. Yeah. Okay. So that is our, our first confrontation here. And as I say, Theodred, this is pretty much all that we get of the death of Theodred, by the way. But yes, Theodred died five days ago. News came five days ago. I guess it was seven days ago that, uh, that Theodred died at the ford of Eisen to the northwest. Gandalf, though, kind of done with Wormtongue. Then it is true, as Aomer reported, that you are in league with the sorceress of the Golden Wood, said Wormtongue. It is not to be wondered at. Webs of deceit are ever woven in Drimordine. Gimli strode a pace forward, but felt suddenly the hand of Gandalf clutch him by the shoulder, and he halted, standing stiff as stone. In Dwimordine, Elorian, seldom have walked the feet of men. Few mortal eyes have seen the light that lies there ever long and bright. Galadriel, Galadriel, clear as the water of your well. White is the star in your white hand. Unmarred, unstained is leaf and land. In Dwimordine, Elorian, more fair than thoughts of mortal men. Dwemordene here, Phantom Vale, Valley of Illusion, I suppose, is the more kind of poetic translation of Dwemordene, one of my favorite words in this entire book. That is Dwemordene, absolutely up there with Halkaraxa for me as, as an invented word by Tolkien. I just love it. This passage is fascinating. This is why I've broken off the, uh, the, the slide halfway through here. We'll get to the confrontation with Grima in just a moment, but I wanted just to pin this, uh, to pin this poem here because I'm not sure where this comes from. Is this a moment of spontaneous poetry from Gandalf? Is this a spontaneous declamation? This can't be a poem that anyone else has written, right? Because it isn't in Elvish metric and elves wouldn't sing like this anyway. Elves wouldn't sing in Dwimordene. They wouldn't sing, seldom have walked the feet of men. No, this has to be a song of men, but of which men? Where does this come from? Well, there are two lines here that echo things that we've seen before. One thing that we've definitely seen before, and one thing that if you're familiar at all with Tolkien, you've definitely heard before. Um, so, okay, well, let's break it down now, right? In Dwemordene and Lorien seldom have walked the feet of men. Few mortal eyes have seen the light that lies there ever long and bright. Galadriel, Galadriel, clear as the water of your well. So, Few people have gone to Lothlorien. Few mortal men have seen, few mortal eyes have seen the light that lies there ever long and bright. Galadriel, Galadriel, clear is the water of your well. You are pure here. Lothlorien is a land of purity. White is the star in your white hand. Not just the fact that both of these things are white, but because they are both white, they are connected. He is referring, of course, to the ring, to Nenya that Galadriel wears here. But also remember, as she shows to uh, to Frodo, you know, the elevation of the hand and the association with the, the morning star, the association with Arendelle, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the sky there. Then we get the interesting parts. Unmarred, unstained is leaf and land, which reminds me of Frodo back on Karen Amroth. Remember when they're passing through Lothlorien and he gets his first kind of vision of what Lothlorien is there on the hill of Amroth, on, on Karen Amroth. And he looks out and the narrator in the POV of, of Frodo says, um, on the land of Lorien, there was no stain. And we talked at the time about how, um, 
Well, that's unnatural, right? That's not actually good. It's not okay that there's no stain. What does that mean? It means that there is no death. It means that there is no decay, that there is no normal process of life within the forest of Lothlorien because it is a theme park maintained by Galadriel and her magic ring. This is our first kind of hint that things may not be okay in Lothlorien. And it's interesting that it is echoed here directly in Gandalf's song. And then, of course, that final line, in Dwemordene and Lorien, more fair than thoughts of mortal men. Can anyone call out what that reminds me of? Can you, I, I'm not sure if any of you are... Um, let me see here if I come back. Dumordene is Rohiric. Right, exactly, says Variego Kant. So this isn't going to come from anyone else. And it doesn't seem to be a song of the Rohirrim. He doesn't seem to be quoting their own words back at them, which makes me think that it is a, uh, makes me think that it is a, um, uh, uh, a piece of spontaneous composition, not the first or last um, spontaneous composition. Um, Father John is asking, how does Gimli know the name Dwemordene? Uh, I'm not sure that he's responding to that. Uh, then it is true, as Aramur reported, that you're in league with the sorceress of the golden wood, says Wormtongue. It is not to be wondered at. Webs of deceit were ever woven in Dwemordene. Okay, at what point does Gimli start moving forward? Gimli strode a pace forward, but felt suddenly the hand of Gandalf clutch him by the shoulder. Okay, let's be clear about one thing. Gimli would have cut Wormtongue in two. He would have hewed him like uh, a young sapling that he wants to take down. And I'm well aware that Gimli has surrendered his axe at the door, by the way. I'm talking about with his bare hands. He would have hewed uh, Wormtongue in twain just with his bare hands for this. You are in league with the sorceress of the golden wood. When are good people ever in league, by the way? When, for some reason, that just has a, an evil connotation, right? You're in league with someone. Oh, that means you're conspiring evilly with that person. It shouldn't mean that. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that. And yet, connotatively, it absolutely does. You're in league with the sorceress of the golden wood. Here again, Wormtongue denying names, denying the power of names. Doesn't say Galadriel, doesn't say the Lady Galadriel, doesn't even say the Lady of Lothlorien, which is, we've used that term to refer to her before. Even the Lady of the Golden Wood would be something, right? Still dismissive, but, you know, objective kind of in its way. But no, no, the sorceress of the, of the golden wood. It is not to be wondered at, oh, this is a trivial matter. Webs of deceit were ever woven in Dwemordne. I don't think we need to get to the last word of that sentence before Gimli's on his feet and moving, right? I think that Gimli is already taking action by this, uh, by this point. Yes. Good. Uh, we're, we appear to be... <laughs> Lily says, I love how irrational Gimli is when it comes to Galadriel. Mm, yes. Irrational? Um... I suppose in the way that that love and fealty and loyalty can be irrational. I'm, I'm, I'm using love in its in its kind of Arthurian sense here, in its chivalric sense, in the sense of, of fealty and loyalty here. She is his lady. Remember the message that Gandalf carried? That this is a message that came from his lady? That is incredibly significant within the kind of feudalistic structures. Like that, that reciprocal relationship between lady and, and faithful servant is very, very powerful and is obviously very significant to Gimli. So I, I was calling out here, does anyone get that last line? Does anyone get the reference in that last line or the point of, of comparison there? Um, I don't see anyone call it out. This may be just me. I'm not sure that this is, is going to connect with anyone else at all. But in Dwemordene and Lorien, more fair than thoughts of mortal men. This reminds me, of course, of the song of Baron. This reminds me of Baron and Luthien. Luthien Tenuviel, more fair than mortal tongue can tell. There's a... There's a similarity there, not just, of course, with the, the, the more fair, of course, but, but also the idea that, that 
that mortal apprehension and expression are insufficient, right? It's not that that Dwamordinay and Lorien is is that that, that Lorien specifically is more fair than can be expressed. No, it can be expressed. Just not by men, just not by not by mortal souls, not by mortal spirits. Similarly, the beauty of Luthien Tenuvial cannot be expressed by mortal tongue. We can't, there's just an insufficient uh, insufficiency there. One must be more connected with the natural world, more connected to the heart of Arda to be able to properly appreciate and express that great beauty. And of course, it would help if you spoke Elvish. Yeah, good. Gimli is Galadriel's knight, says Nikki. That is exactly the way that I was that I was uh, talking about him. Yes, exactly. It is that chivalric love. It is that chivalric fealty there to his lady. Yes, that's very, very good. Okay, let's wrap up this slide. Thus Gandalf softly sang, and then suddenly he changed. Casting his tattered cloak aside, he stood up and leaned no longer on his staff. Then he spoke in a clear, cold voice. The wise speak only of what they know, Grima, son of Garamod. A witless worm have you become. Therefore be silent and keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. I have not passed through fire and death to bandy crooked words with a serving man till the lightning falls. He raised his staff. There was a roll of thunder. The sunlight was blotted out from the eastern windows. The whole hall became suddenly dark as night. The fire faded to sullen embers. Only Gandalf could be seen, standing white and tall before the blackened hearth. We've seen Gandalf uncloaked before. This is becoming kind of his party trick, actually. We've seen this a few times now. This is the, what, third time that we've seen it since he came back, since he showed up again on the fringes of Fangorn Forest, and here he's doing it again, but it is again to great effect. He's not in the guise of Gandalf the Grey anymore. He doesn't need to disguise his power. That time has passed. The reason that the Istari went forth in the world in the form of old men was twofold. Firstly, because it prevented the possibility of any one of the Istari, any one of the wizards, rising up after the overthrow of Sauron to become a new and terrible Dark Lord. They were limited by their physiology. They were limited by the age that they voluntarily undertook, right? But also, the old men were supposed to pass unnoticed. They were supposed to move through the world, not in open opposition to Sauron. The Astari were not sent to Middle-earth to become captains of, of men, to become the leaders of great armies, to subjugate Gondor and reunite forcibly the northern and southern kingdoms, to, to bring the, the Rohirrim in line, to, to force the elves to form a new alliance, to retake Erebor by force. They were not supposed to do any of those things. They were supposed to inspire and to give wise counsel, and they were supposed to do so kind of in secret, kind of behind the scenes. And that's deep in the Legendarium, of course, but also evident from what we've seen of Gandalf so far. Now, uncloaked as he is so often, he has no need to hide. He can now demonstrate his power at its fullest. Well, no, perhaps not at its fullest. This is still a very small measure of his power, but it is a measure nonetheless. Yes. Let me see. Um, Good, good. Uh, Lily asks, in Gandalf's quote there, is worm like the English word or the snake in Wormtongue's name? Um, a witless worm have you become? I think he's, he's, he's giving us the pun, right? He's giving us, this is not the Anglo-Saxon worm, this is the English worm, a witless worm. Yes, you are known for your clever tongue, you are known for your deceitful skill, you are known for your cunning, you're a witless worm. You have no skill, no cunning, no, no dwimmercraft here. You are just ignorant, right? Um, the wise speak only of what they know, Grima, son of Galmo. This is when we get his name. Grima, interestingly, means mask, right? It means like, um, like a, um, 
like a, a visor, you know, like the, uh, the, the, the mask of a, a plate helm, right? So it, it's a disguise. That, that is what Grima actually means. Galmode, his father, means light-minded and licentious, which I like quite a lot. Hey, you know your dad, the light-minded licentious one, Grima, the mask? It's just some good Tolkienian naming going on here. So we get the manifestation of Gandalf's power and we're ready. Yes, cloak drop, says Ray Lalin, is the new mic drop. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. Okay, let's keep pushing on here. Um, gosh, I'm at time, believe it or not. We may, um, one, two, three, four. Okay, this is what we're going to do. I think we're going to do the healing of Theoden. So we'll do uh, two more slides and then we'll wrap it up and we'll we'll cover the rest before we get to the Battle of Helm's Deep in, in short order next week. Um, now, Theoden, son of Thengel, will you hearken to me, said Gandalf. Do you ask for help? He lifted his staff and pointed to a high window. There the darkness seemed to clear, and through the opening could be seen high and far a patch of shining sky. Not all is dark. Take courage, Lord of the Mark, for better help you will not find. No counsel have I to give to those that despair. Yet counsel I could give, and words I could speak to you. Will you hear them? They are not for all ears. I bid you come out before your doors and look abroad. Too long have you sat in shadows and trusted to twisted tales and crooked promptings. Slowly, Theoden left his chair. A faint light grew in the hall again. The women hastened to the king's side. Excuse me. The woman hastened to the king's side. Taking his arm and with faltering steps, the old man came down from the dais and paced softly through the hall. Wormtongue remained lying on the floor. They came to the doors and Gandalf knocked. Open, he cried. The Lord of the Mark comes forth. The doors rolled back and a keen air came whistling in. A wind was blowing on the hill. Send your guards down to the stairs foot, said Gandalf. And you, lady, leave him a while with me. I will care for him. Go, Eowyn's sister daughter, said the old king. The time for fear is past. The woman turned and went slowly into the house. As she passed the doors, she turned and looked back. Grave and thoughtful was her glance, and she looked on the king with cool pity in her eyes. Very fair was her face, and her long hair was like a river of gold. Slender and tall she was in her white robe, girt with silver, but strong she seemed, and stern as steel, a daughter of kings. Thus Aragorn, for the first time in the full light of day, beheld Eowyn, lady of Rohan, and thought her fair, fair and cold like a morning of pale spring that has not yet come to womanhood. And she now was suddenly aware of him, tall heir of kings, wise with many winters, grey-cloaked, hiding a power that yet she felt. For a moment still the stone she stood, then turning swiftly, she was gone. Now, Lord, said Gandalf, look out upon your land, breathe the free air again. Grey-cloaked, hiding a power, quotes Variac. Yes, I love that. Angela Larie's quoting uh, sister-daughter here in the Anglo-Saxon tradition. Yes, sister-daughter, sister-son, as we will refer to Aomer. Um, Aomer and uh, Eowyn, brother and sister, of course. Um, they are the children of Eomund, you know, Eomer, son of Eomund, and Theoden's sister, Theodwin both of whom are dead. So uh, Theoden has taken them in. He has fostered his niece and nephew here in his golden hall. And of course, given Eomer the title of third marshal of the Mark, which is an impressive and, and uh, senior title in the Rohanic forces here. So what has happened to Theoden? It's interesting to look at this from 
both a, a generally modern perspective, right, from, from a post-Tolkienian perspective where we've seen stories like this play out in the Tolkienian tradition in the years since The Lord of the Rings was published, and also, of course, specifically in a post-Lord of the Rings the movie, uh, or the movie trilogy world, uh, a world in which we can look at the much more much more heightened version of the scene that we get in the Peter Jackson adaptation. But I want to set that aside because, again, that is a bold adaptive choice, but it is a choice. It is a change. It is a, an alteration to the core text. What here has been wrought upon Theoden King? What has happened to Theoden that has kept him here in darkness, that has made him smaller in stature, like unto a dwarf, as we get in that first description? But then when he, when he stands, we are told that, no, actually, even at the age of 80, he is still tall. He is still a man of some measure, a man of some mark. What has happened to Theoden? Well, usefully, Grima Wormtongue actually gives us the perfect metaphor when he calls Gandalf earlier Lothspell, ill news. Has Grima Wormtongue cast a spell on Theoden? Well, yes, but it's not a magic spell. He has controlled Theoden by controlling the influx of information. He has made the world beyond seem darker and more hopeless and more cruel. And we can see this because of what happens to Theoden when Gandalf leads him outside. The very fact that Gandalf leads him outside, right? He first of all casts the chamber, casts the golden hall into darkness so that only he himself is lit, only he himself is illuminated. Then the darkness seemed to clear and through the opening could be seen high and far a patch of shining sky. Not all is dark, says Gandalf. Not all is dark. There is still light in the world. You can't see it all right now, not from in here. But look, even amidst the darkness, there is light. Look to the sky and you will see it. Now you have to come outside. Uh, I bid you to come out before your doors and look abroad. Too long have you sat in shadows and trusted to twisted tales and crooked promptings. And this is apparently enough. The influence of Gandalf here is enough. Theoden gets to his feet, and the faint light is growing in the hall. Kind of the, the pathetic fallacy is occurring around him here, right? The light itself is responding to Theoden's lightening heart, but also, presumably, Gandalf is giving him more light. He is feeding him more light now as he stands. The woman hastened to the king's side, taking his arm. With faltering steps, the old man comes down from the dais, paces softly through the hall. They come to the doors, and Gandalf knocks, right? So, Eowyn is, is bearing the weight of Theoden as they come down from the dais and approach the doors. Gandalf calls forth, the Lord of the Mark comes forth. He's giving Theoden his title here, not your king, not Theoden king, the Lord of the Mark. We're back to titles again, right? We're back to, to true names, to kind of echo our discussion of Earthsea that we had last night. The doors rolled back and a keen air came whistling in. A wind was blowing on the hill. We have... The wind on the meadow that was referred to earlier in Aragorn's song. We have, gosh, the, the notion of winds as powerful. I mean, this goes back to, you know, Aragorn and Legolas's uh, impromptu eulogy for Boromir. Remember the, the, the men of Minas Tirith asking the winds for news of Boromir? This goes all the way back to the, the Hobbit and the dwarves' divine wind, the wind that came from the west and traveled across the world to the Lonely Mountain and then ascended into the heavens. This is another perspective on the restorative power, the, the, the purity of a clean wind. It is cold, but it is there. A keen air came whistling in. Keen here, meaning meaning cold and edged. It is a fresh breeze coming in for the first time in a while. 
send your guards down to the stairs foot and you lady leave him with me a while I will care for him Gandalf giving instruction to Eowyn but crucially Theoden supporting it go Eowyn's sister daughter the time for fear is past whose fear Eowyn's fear is that why she wouldn't leave him because she would herself be afraid of what would happen to him well perhaps but also his fear he is setting it aside then we cut away from Theoden back to Eowyn's experience. As she passed the door, she turned and looked back. Grave and thoughtful was her glance, and she looked on the king with cool pity in her eyes. Cool here can be difficult for, for modern readers. We might not huh, we might not warm to Eowyn as much as Tolkien intended us to warm to Eowyn. Cool here meaning, you know, I see certainly we're, we're connecting the wind with Eowyn here, right? We're getting this, this association of, of coolness and purity, this kind of, of it is untainted by, by smoke and by fire. This is something that is clean. It is cool and it is clean. That's the association that we're getting. She's not restricted because, of course, modern readers may also have trouble with pity, as we've discussed many times before in, in our discussions of, of Tolkien's work. Pity is a glorious virtue. Pity is a wonderful thing. The fact that she exhibits pity, the fact that she exhibits pity for the king, for her uncle, is a sign of great nobility for Eowyn. She is possessed of a great heart. Very fair was her face, and her long hair like a river of gold. Slender and tall she was in her white robe, girt with silver. But strong she seemed, and stern as steel, a daughter of kings. This description of Eowyn is is stirring, right? She is a knockout. She is a magnificent woman. This is this is evident even from, from this introduction, never mind what we get of her later. Thus Aragorn, for the first time in the full light of day, beheld Eowyn, Lady of Rohan, and thought her fair, fair and cold like a morning of pale spring that has not yet come to womanhood. Hey, Professor Tolkien, how's your metaphor? Is it uh, unmixed? Or is it pretty mixed, actually? He beheld her fair, fair and cold, like a morning of pale spring that has not yet come to womanhood. You know how mornings of pale spring finally come to womanhood? Yeah, he's mixing his metaphor here, but he's doing so purposefully, right? Because in a sense, mornings of pale spring do come to womanhood. They do come to fertility and fecundity and abundance. They do rise to ripeness in exactly the way as, as you know, great women do. There is something of, you know, we could think of the association here between Galadriel and the land of Lothlorien, right? Yes, she's wielding her magic ring to preserve Lothlorien, but she's also there with her her primary kind of maternal connection to the land about her. So it is a mixed metaphor, but it is a, a purposefully mixed metaphor. It's kind of a, a reciprocally connected metaphor there. It's one that I actually rather quite like. And she now was suddenly aware of him, tall heir of kings, wise with many winters, gray-cloaked, hiding a power that yet she felt. Oh, he's not Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of Isildur, you know, wielder of the blade that was broken. Right now, he's low-key ranger of the north. He's low-key Aragorn the Dúnedain, you know, chieftain of the Dúnedain maybe, but no more than that right now. But she can sense that, that greatness within him. And she can sense it within him, of course. This is a princess in the pea scenario. She can sense it within him because she carries that greatness within her too. This is why the connection between Aragorn and Eowyn is is in part so immediate, right? It, it, it is so profound and so pure because they are actually kindred spirits. They are of a sort. They are of an order together. And were it not for Arwen, things would turn out very differently. For a moment still, she stood a stone, then turning swiftly, she was gone. 
And we cut back to Theoden, right? Now, Lord, said Gandalf, look out upon your land. Breathe the free air again. Look at the light. Look at the truth and breathe the clean air. This is going to be the restoration here. Gandalf is saying, remember who you are. Like Moana, Gandalf is reminding Theoden King who you are. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Good. Good. Um, Okay, I am, yes, well over time. You know what, let's do one more. Let's do one more slide and then we'll wrap it up because this has the line of the evening for me. This has the line of this reading for me. From the porch upon the top of the high terrace, they could see beyond the stream the green fields of Rohan fading into distant gray. Curtains of wind-blown rain were slanting down. The sky above and to the west was still dark with thunder and lightning far away flickered among the tops of hidden hills. But the wind had shifted to the north and already the storm that had come out of the east was receding, rolling away southward to the sea. Suddenly, through a rent in the clouds behind them, a shaft of sun stabbed down. The falling showers gleamed like silver, and far away the river glittered like a shimmering glass. It is not so dark here, said Theoden. No, said Gandalf, nor does age lie so heavily on your shoulders as some would have you think. Cast aside your prop. From the king's hands, the black staff fell clattering on the stones. He drew himself up, slowly, as a man that is stiff from long bending over some dull toil. Now tall and straight he stood, and his eyes were blue as he looked into the opening sky. Dark have been my dreams of late, he said, but I feel as one new awakened. I would now that you had come before, Gandalf, for I feel that already you have come too late, only to see the last days of my house. Not long now shall stand the high hall which Brago, son of Eor, built. Fire shall devour the high seat. What is to be done? Much, said Gandalf. But first, send for Eomer. Do I not rightly guess that you hold him prisoner by the counsel of Grima, of him that all save you name the Worm Tongue? It is true, said Theoden. He had rebelled against my commands and threatened death to Grima in my hall. A man may love you and yet not love Worm Tongue or his counsels, said Gandalf. That may be. I will do as you ask. Call Hama to me. Since he proved untrustworthy as a doorward, let him become an errand runner. The guilty shall bring the guilty to judgment, said Theoden. And his voice was grim, yet he looked at Gandalf and smiled. And as he did so, many lines of care were smoothed away and did not return. So here we have the restoration of Theoden. It is not so dark here. Dark have been my dreams of late, but I feel as one new awakened. He is brought forth from the darkness of his hall, from the sanctuary of his hall that has become a prison, a prison of the body and a prison of the spirit. The prison of his own body has been made manifest within the prison of his golden hall. A golden hall, by the way, which roofed in straw does not appear golden from within. The golden hall only appears golden when you are standing outside beholding the sunlight falling upon the straw. So the storm that Gandalf has summoned, question mark, tapped into, question mark, used for his own theatrical devices, question mark, that storm has now rolled away into the distance and the fresh, clean air is restoring Theoden. It is not so dark here. It is not as dark as it was inside, one possible in interpretation. Plus, it is not as dark as I had been led to believe. I had been led to believe that the world was on the brink of disaster, that everywhere around me, my, my son has died and my nephew has turned against me, that he is not to be trusted. He has now been cast into prison on the the advice of Grima Wormtongue, I have been imprisoned within my hall, imprisoned within my body, imprisoned within my age, imprisoned within the lies and the stories that Grima Wormtongue have told me, and now I am free. 
Now I feel as one new awakened. I would now that you had come before Gandalf. Already he sees what has happened. This transformation is immediate. The, the spell, in the sense of news, in the sense of message, in the sense of storytelling that Grima wrought upon him has now been shattered. It has been cast aside by Gandalf's vision of truth, of light, of purity, of, of freshness. Now the world is renewed and Theoden King is renewed within it. And now he is fearful. The last days of my house, he predicts. Not long now shall stand the high hall which Brago, son of Errol, built. Excuse me, fire shall devour the high seat. What is to be done? Well, much, says Gandalf. We've got actually a lot to do. Step one, Aomer. Aomer is in prison because of Wormtongue, right? Okay, let's go get him. You're going to need people around you. The task now lays before us. And that is where we are going to wrap up this week's session. Next week, we are going to finish our discussion of the King of the Golden Hall, and we are going to move into Chapter 7 of Book 3 of The Two Towers, Helm's Deep. This session is going to take place at 3 p.m. Eastern. We're going to do an afternoon session, and we're going to be back to our regular Thursday slot next week. So 3 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, November the 30th, for our next discussion of The Lord of the Rings, to wrap up our discussion of Theoden's restoration, to talk a little about... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> to talk a little about the rising of the of the, uh, the the Rohiric people and um, the the, uh, the the marshalling of the army and the going forth and of course the uh, I wanted to say gifting but that's not actually true right the the appointing of Aon as a proper regent, right? As as the holder of power, we're going to get to all of that next week, and we're going to talk about that distinction between the the frontier and and the home, the the difference between the field and the hearth, you know, the the external and the internal within Rohiric culture and within Anglo-Saxon culture. We'll talk about all of that next week, as well, of course, as a small matter of the Battle of Helm's Deep. That is going to do it for our discussion this week. You guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for keeping me company tonight. If you are in the US, happy Thanksgiving. I hope you have a wonderful and restful day tomorrow and I hope that the the pie is abundant and that, that all of your favorite foodstuffs are present on the the, the laden table that, that marks our celebrations at this time of year. And if you're not in the US, then I hope you just have a very thankful Thursday and I hope that you too have some pie. That would be a very good thing for all of us, I'm sure. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being with me. I will talk to you all again next week, as I say, 3 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, November 30th, for our next There and Back Again session. I will talk to you then. Until then, take care. Good night.